How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. We are delighted today on the broadcast to have Dr. Mark David Hall. He is a Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and Faculty Fellow in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University in the beautiful state of Newburgh, Oregon. He is also a faculty member at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, a senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. He's written, edited, or co-edited dozens of books on religion and politics in America. He is a recognized expert in the realm of religious freedom. He writes for the online publication Law and Liberty and Intercollegiate Studies Reviews. He's appeared regularly in several media outlets, including Jerry Newcomb's Truth in Action, Tim Wildman's Today, and Janet Medford's show, along with our good friend Michael Medved's program, and many other programs and outlets, and that's enough of all that. Dr. Mark David Hall from now on. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So just for our friends and family listening, you and I have an interesting connection. I served as a pastor at the Emmanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia for about almost a dozen years, and your fine folks were uh, wonderful members of that church the time I was there, and little known to me, you were off in college and doing advanced degrees when they were there, but small world connection, right? That is, yes, sir, and they sure remember you fondly. They loved having you as their pastor. Well, you know, that's the thing about getting older is you remember things fondly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, They were a delight. They are a delight. So anyway, the connection, other, other connection we have here is my dear friend Rob Schwartzwalder, who now teaches at Regent, had interviewed you in an article that he publishes for The Stream, and that's what brought your book to my attention. The book actually was published, was it last uh, October 2019? That's right, yes. Did America Have a Christian Founding? And Rob is one of my go-tos whenever I do media or some things that are outside my subject matter expertise just to get a framework or where to begin. So when I read Rob's article in the stream, I said, we have to get Mark on the broadcast. So again, thanks for that. So let's back up because I read through the book and I read the conclusion, which in some respects maybe should have been the introduction. You presented this idea, so to speak, as a lecture. Give us the backstory on the book and then let's go forward. Sure. Almost 10 years ago, the Heritage Foundation, Washington, D.C., had me um, come to give a lecture on this very question, did America have a Christian founding? And we were very surprised, pleasantly surprised, when C-SPAN showed up and covered it. I then published the lecture as a paper, and we found out that it had been downloaded something like 300,000 times, which for an academic, this is fantastic, right? I have written a number (laughs) of books that maybe only sell 400 copies to other university libraries. And so I was able to use that number to convince Thomas Nelson to publish Did America Have a Christian Founding as a book for the general reading public. So although it's based on my many years of academic research, it's very, very accessible. 
really anyone with a high school degree and an interest in this question can sit down and read it and profit from it. You know, it's funny you mention that because in reading through it, I came across a couple of your little subtle but sarcastic comments about you know something like "Dad, write a book we can read," and <laughs> "In your pastor." But it's interesting how we have to, in some respects, communicate to the masses. And just for my quick reading, it's a very easy read. I want to encourage our friends to check out the book, and we'll have information on how to access it online anywhere that you can purchase it. Let's jump into this. So you give this lecture. C-SPAN shows up, it goes, we'd call today somewhat viral. And for an academic, that's a big deal. I want to start with a question that you entertained later in the book. Where does the language mark jump from America as a Christian culture to deism and deistic? Where does that kind of enter the narrative, if you will, in your research? Sure. Well, one thing I kind of set up in the lecture and in the book is you have two sets of answers to the question, did America have a Christian founding? The one that is far, far too common, given by many academics and popular authors, is of course it did not. America's founders were deists, they created a godless constitution, and they wanted a strict separation of church and state. Deism, of course, is a rationalist approach to theology that basically says there's a creator God who created the universe and he wants us to be good, but he certainly doesn't intervene in the affairs of men and nations. And, you know, things like the Trinity and the Incarnation and that sort of thing, we can throw out the window because they simply are not rational. And so, so many authors make this argument. So in in large part, I'm responding to them. On the other side of the coin, you do have some popular Christian authors who make arguments that are pretty similar to mine, but unfortunately, they oftentimes don't have academic credentials. They overstate their case. They misuse evidence. And so it's really easy to dismiss their work. Certainly scholars dismiss them all the time. And so what I'm attempting to do is make a a very solid case in America at a Christian founding to poke holes in some of these myths and yet to do so in a very accessible way. When we hear the language so often, uh, the separation of church and state, and this has been twisted. And I mean, we have organizations that are, you know, self-appointed watchmen, watchdogs to be sure there's, you know, that we don't cross that line. Give us a little history of that and your understanding of it. Sure. Well, of course, there's nothing wrong with the separation of church and state. I think you can trace it back to Jesus Christ, right? Given to Caesar what is Caesar's, mm-hmm. unto God what is God's. The church should not be the state and the state should not be the church. In the American context, where it gets problematic is when you get to the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Thomas Jefferson famously in 1802 said that this establishment clause creates a wall of separation between church and state. This was picked up by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1947, and it is used all the times by groups like the Freedom from Religion Foundation, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, to say things like World War I-era crosses on public land have to be removed, that Christian schools shouldn't be able to participate in voucher programs and that sort of thing. And so what I argue in the book is that an originalist understanding of the Establishment Clause, that is what the clause was intended to do when it was created in the late 18th century, is basically to prohibit the U.S. government from creating an established church, just like the Church of England, We can't have a church of the United States, but otherwise, it certainly doesn't require a wall of separation between church and state. It doesn't require World War I era monuments to be torn down. It doesn't require monuments to the Ten Commandments on public land to be torn down. 
it certainly permits a um, Lutheran preschool to participate in a state program to provide safe playground surfaces and so forth. So this is one of those areas where I think my book has profound real world consequences. It's not just a matter of academic debate. As you suggested, there are these organizations that are going around making arguments that we have to have a secular public square. And I would like to think that I demolish those arguments in this book. When you talk about freedom from religion in some of these groups, I remember Mikey Weinstein is the name, somewhat of a household name. When you look at the military and what's happened to having chaplains, especially Christian chaplains on Air Force Academy or at West Point, or even in some cases on bases, he's been pretty successful in eradicating any type of distribution of literature. If you could comment, and it might be difficult to generalize, but why does this get such traction when it seems pretty clear, we, and, and as you document in your book, this is nothing new from Washington to many presidents have called for prayer. I remember 9-11, my daughter, who was at uh, Lake Braddock High School, you may remember, came home and she said, Dad, prayer came back to the public school today. <laughs> you know, because in, in those times of crisis, no one's going to stand in the way, but you know, there's a calm, there's a, something done that's egregious to these groups. And all of a sudden we find ourselves on our heels and we lose some, well, it would seem to me, we lose some important battles that we can't have a chaplaincy program. We can't talk about Christ. We can't talk about the Bible. Sure. Well, fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court has gotten much better on these questions, thanks to um, appointment by George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And so if these cases make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, the good guys are likely to win, for want of a better word. So I mentioned this World One era cross several times. And this was a case that was decided just last summer, a cross up in Blandensburg, Maryland, put up in 1925 to honor um, World War I dead. In this case, it was American Humanist Association said, this cannot stand. We have to tear down this cross or decapitate it or something like that. Fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court, by a vote of seven to two, said, no, we don't have to scrub religion from the public square. Now, what some of the more liberal or progressive justices seem to want to make a distinction in their mind is that old monuments are okay, but if Maryland wanted to create a giant cross as a memorial to the dead in Afghanistan, that would not be permissible. What I argue in my book is actually it is constitutionally permissible. The Constitution in no way prohibits that sort of thing. And yet I would suggest as a matter of prudence, particularly since today, you know, we, we are a very pluralistic country. Many service people are not Christians. They might be Muslims or Hindus or Sikhs. It probably would be inappropriate to create a giant cross to memorialize American servicemen who've given their lives in Afghanistan. We might want to have a more inclusive monument, but certainly it's constitutionally permissible to have um, religious imagery. You mentioned 9-11. If you go up to the 9-11 memorial, what you'll see there is they have that gigantic cross made out of two beams from the Twin Towers. And yet you also have Stars of David, Stars and Crescent, and that sort of thing. So I celebrate that sort of diversity, even though I'm not no pluralist. I'll try to convert a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, an atheist to Christianity. But I think in our public lives, we need to be inclusive and not exclusive. I remember after 9-11, of course, we were in Virginia, D.C. at the time, and there was an Afghan mosque across the street. I don't know if you visited. I remember after, that. Yeah. And they held a media event and implored me to come speak. And you know how these things work. It's sort of the media gadflies all show up and the major news you know, outlets were there with their satellite trucks and 
everybody from the Red Cross to the police department to the Unitarians. They were all, you know, giving their little speech. And the Islamic congregation, for lack of a better term, was in the parking lot because, of course, we could not go into the mosque. And it was warm and the sun was out and I was standing in the shade trying to dodge the whole thing. But I knew the imam. I knew what we would constitute the leaders of the church from other relationship building. And they asked me to speak and I was very reticent, but I finally, you know, took to the microphone and I said, look, you know, we uh, let you park your cars on uh, Friday in our parking lot for you to have your services. And we're glad to do that because we're neighbors and we have no qualm with that. I said, I've broken bread with your imam and with your leaders. And I said, and we will be American neighbors. I said, but when it comes to what we believe, I believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. You hold to a different faith. But I said, but in our country, we can still be friends. And you would have thought I had thrown a flamethrower across that room. (laughs) They were livid with me. And I found it so striking that we can embrace, you went through the list of different, quote, faith, quote, religions. And yet, we're always on our, it seems like, Mark, we're on our heels. And I'm, I'm just, you know, you wrote a book, I would say, for the 12th grade educated person that's easy to comprehend, easy to read. But help us out with the day in, day life discourse of, gosh, I don't have 30 years of history teaching this stuff academically. How do I have a conversation about, you know, I believe in a Christian culture, quote unquote, Judeo Christian, is that a fair phrase? And how do I navigate these minefields in the culture? You know, I think you put your um, finger on it with your story about your neighborhood mosque. If you go back to the American founding, America's founders were overwhelmingly Christian, about 98% Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic. There were about 2,000 Jews in America at the time. And yet they drew from the Christian beliefs to create a constitutional order for all people. Let me just give one example of this. It's one of my favorite examples. America's founders clearly understood that everyone has a right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to act according to religious convictions, unless, of course, there's a compelling state interest in keeping them from doing so. An Aztec doesn't have a right to sacrifice a baby to the sun god, obviously. My favorite illustration of this is George Washington wrote a letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. And remember, this is a tiny little minority. It's not a politically um, powerful constituency. And he made it crystal clear. He said, basically, in America, we speak of toleration no more. Every American has the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. So America's founders understood that we need to be good neighbors. We need to be good neighbors to Jews to Muslims, to Sikhs, to atheists. Of course, most of those groups weren't in America at the time, but they created a constitutional order that's open for everyone. But it's also an order that's open for freedom of speech. And so we as Christians have every right to convert non-Christians to the faith. And of course, they can try to convert us as well. This is a very healthy pluralism. It's not a pluralism that pretends every religion is equal because it's not, but it is a pluralism that says everyone does have a right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. When you speak of founders very frequently in the book, and we we talk about, you know, I, I can, today I've been listening to some of the broadcast of a, a congressional hearing going on, and you'll hear that term founders probably before the day's over. What's to say, well, wait a minute, this is 
technically the early 1700s, right, when this is actually brewing. And by the time we've got 1776, we've got this stuff documented. Don't we need to, and I don't mean progressive in the way it's used today, but don't we need to progress beyond the mindset of what people thought and felt and believed in the mid-1700s? In certain respects, we do, I think. Um, if you want to criticize the founders, I think you can criticize them on the institution of slavery, for instance. Many of them were coming to oppose the institution of slavery. So something like eight states voluntarily abolished slavery between 1776 and 1804. Congress banned the importation of slaves in 1808. But obviously, some states held on to slavery. And unfortunately, we had to fight a bloody civil war and then amend the Constitution with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to abolish slavery and to protect the rights of the freed slaves. So that was a, a very useful sort of change. But I would suggest that it's useful you know, we live under a constitution that has been very successful. And I think it's been so successful because it draws from Christian ideas. I've already mentioned how the founders drew from their ideas to protect religious liberty. Let me mention another way. America's founders were convinced to a person that humans are sinful and even redeemed humans continue to struggle with the old man within. And so therefore they designed a constitutional order characterized by federalism and separation of powers and checks and balances and this constitutional order has done much to prevent tyranny in the United States of America. You look at other approaches to constitutionalism that assume that humans are basically good, and almost always those sorts of constitutional orders end up in a bloodbath, whether it be communist Russia or the French Revolution or this sort of thing. And so I think we need to think long and hard before we tamper with this constitutional order that has been bequeathed to us. It doesn't mean we don't make some changes that we constitutionally guarantee women the right to vote and that sort of thing. So there have been some good changes, but I think we need to be very careful in saying, let's just throw the whole thing out and start over. That's a recipe for disaster. Let's jump ahead quite a bit to Obergefell. And I don't know that you address it in the book. I've read 90% of the text and I don't think you touched on it. But my question is, was it Justice Stevens, correct me please, who after the conclusion said the real test of this is going to be religious freedom? So on the one hand, we have as a, a nation said, it's okay for same-sex marriages to occur. And of course, we'll probably see permutations of that. And I also want to come back and talk about the Supreme Court justice and how important these appointments are. But when Obergefell made that comment, we're coming out of a cliche, bake the cake or lose your shop, you know, make the floor arrangement or lose your store. And yet when it comes to religious freedom, now they're going to knock on, let's say the, the door of the church I pastor or you attend church. They're going to say, we come to our church, we love you, we are involved, we give our money, and me and my significant other want to get married. And it falls out of the framework of a heterosexual monogamous marriage, however you want to define it. And now we're in a different world. Yes, we are. Yeah, and I've been pretty involved with this sort of litigation as an expert witness. So first of all, let me just say the Obergefell decision, which requires all states to recognize same-sex marriage, was utterly ridiculous as a matter of constitutional law. That issue should have been left up to the states. And if it had been left up to the states, some states like Oregon and Washington, California, would have legalized same-sex marriage or legally recognized it. But certainly other states wouldn't have. One of the problems that has come out after Obergefell, and really this is more a matter of statutory law, about half of the states 
prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Half of the states don't. And so that's why you hear these cases coming out of states like Washington, Oregon, California, Colorado, but not Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia. But the conflict really, it's seen as a conflict of rights. So on the one hand, you have a religious person, usually a religious person, I guess it doesn't have to be, but say Baronel Stutzman, a grandmother in Washington state, a florist, and she knowingly and willingly serves a same-sex couple for something like six years. She does about $4,500 worth of business for them. Washington legalizes same-sex marriage. She hears through the grapevine that they're going to come and ask her to do the flowers for her wedding. She goes home and prays about it, and she just decides she cannot do that as a matter of religious conscience. The couple comes into her florist shop. She gives him a hug and says, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And she refers him to three other florists that are perfectly happy to do that. In a world of adults, I would say this should be the end of it, right? The couple is going to be disappointed, maybe hurt, but they should go to another florist. Instead, they go to the ACLU and they sue her. They threaten her with ruinous lawsuits. They bring these suits. And then the attorney general of the state, of the state of Washington, decides to jump in and um, sue her so that she can no longer be a florist in the state of Washington. Utterly ridiculous, I think. Assuming for the sake of argument, we're going to have same-sex marriage and laws banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, certainly state constitutional provisions, statutory provisions, or the U.S. Constitution should say that the religious liberty of Baron L. Stutzman to not participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony to which she has sincere religious objection, this has to be protected. To give a quick little overview of where I think the threats lie, what we've seen in the courts is that for-profit businesses, such as bakeries, florist shops, photographers, have been given almost no protection. On the other hand, churches and places of worship really aren't, haven't been threatened in any serious way. And so I would say for-profit businesses are in, in a lot of jeopardy. Churches, synagogues, mosques, not so much. The real battleground is in private religious groups, such as a Christian college, such as the one I teach in, religious hospitals, groups like InterVarsity, that's where the real battle lies nowadays. It's definitely something that we have got to take into account when we cast our vote in this next presidential election. And one of the things you'll see I do in the book is I encourage people to donate to groups like the Christian Legal Society, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund, First Liberty, these wonderful religious liberty advocacy groups that are on the front line fighting for religious liberty every day. When, and of course we're jumping way ahead from the overall thesis of your book, but you know, it, it seems to be the natural flow of this. If we're not a Christian culture, if we're not a Christian country, or if we're progressing away from these founding tenets, then the argument, and again, you see this in students. I saw it in students when I was at Moody. I do not recognize the mindset of many young people today. You and I lived under a time when sanctity of life and the idea of marriage were the two sort of, you know, whetstones for how we had the discussion or how we voted. Those are gone. Now with Obergefell and Roe v. Wade, which you know may or may not have some challenges in the future, now we're social justice warriors. We're advocacy for, you know, LGBTQA plus. We're more about tolerance and freedom. And it, it seems to have whiplash to where the lowly founding, you know, father, the Christian, the person who believes in these tenets is now all completely on the defensive and we're the minority. 
and give us some help, Mark. <laughs> you know, we can donate, we can write checks, we can vote, but the mindset, at least in my worldview, the mindset is not that they yawn at the idea of LGBTQI. Of course, we should be tolerant. They yawn at the idea that life is sacred. They yawn at the idea that Christians, you know, had influence in the shaping of this country. I'm very sympathetic to everything you're saying. I guess I ultimately rest my hope in God and his sovereignty, and I pray for revival. I pray that people will turn to him or recommit their lives to God. I think this should be our first and foremost prayer, and that we should be engaging our fellow citizens and sharing the gospel. Politically, since I am a political scientist, I I do sometimes also think of these more practical things, and that's why I think we should be active in the courts, and we should make the best practical arguments that we can make. Religious liberty historically has been a very important American value, one embraced by Democrats and Republicans alike. And I think if we make these arguments in the public square, you know, arguing that we should overturn same-sex marriage, that's just not going to happen. Arguing that Baronel Stutzman should be able to live according to her conscience and not have to participate in the same-sex wedding ceremony, I think this is more likely to happen. And here, I think we need to go beyond legal arguments to tell stories Oftentimes, I told a little bit of her story, right? This wonderful grandmother of a florist who loves everyone. She hires same-sex attracted people to work in her shop. You know, why should she be forced to participate in a wedding ceremony against her convictions? A Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, you know, a good solid guy. He refuses to make cakes um, glorifying hatred or violence. Why should he be forced to make a cake that goes against his religious convictions. I think there's maybe some room where we could get people who have no problem with same-sex wedding ceremonies or marriages, and yet who can appreciate the point that people ought not to be forced to go against their religious convictions unless there's a very good reason for the state to force them to go against their religious convictions. And there are examples of that. We're going to force Christian scientists to provide medical treatment to their children, but those examples are few and far between. You mentioned the cake and the florist. One of my concerns, and again, I have a fine Christian attorney friend that said, uh, I asked him about this early on in the Colorado case, and he said, bake the cake. And I pushed back, and he said, how many other people that hold other views that he, you know, bake products for, or we could say make floral arrangements for, that perhaps didn't align with him? I said, but there's a difference between conscience and what you feel like you're supporting. I saw, and it's a bit pejorative, but I saw a video where a man went into a Muslim neighborhood and he went to several bakers and was going to order a cake. And then when he explained the final, you know, decoration was him and his alleged gay lover, none of the Muslim bakers would do it. And yet none of those will be sued because that's the third rail. So it's an interesting dynamic to live in from a, as you say, a practical standpoint. I I agree we must write policy. We must fight it in the court. We must stand up. We must have courage. But it's tough when you're, you know, just a a working stiff, so to speak. Uh, You're a person that goes to work every day, loves the Lord, loves the church, loves his community. And he or she now is assaulted by something that can change the entire course of their life. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's critically important that we protect all religious conscience, including conscience that we don't agree with, right? So Jehovah's Witness, I'm sure you know, 
kind of famously refuse to salute the American flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance because they view that as synonymous with uh, idolatry. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's wrong, but the state shouldn't force them to do that sort of thing, right? My Quaker pacifist friends believe they can't use violence, and so they ought not to be forced to serve in the military. I disagree with their interpretation of Matthew 5, and yet you know, they should be protected. So we should protect people, whatever their religious beliefs. You allude to the Muslim bakers who won't bake cakes. If we step back for a minute, and you can think of scenarios, a um, African-American baker who's asked to bake a cake celebrating white supremacy. Of course, he shouldn't be forced to do that sort of thing. And I think most of us would say if a white baker was asked to bake a cake celebrating white supremacy, it would be very laudable for him not to do that, right? We want people to act according to their convictions. It's just mostly on this LGBTQ sort of issue. I think that is just, you mentioned a third rail, a third rail that cannot be touched. If you in any way dissent from supporting LGBTQ rights in any way, shape, or form, or or even perceived to, you're going to be in a a great deal of trouble today. Talk to us a little bit about, and this is one of the questions that Rob asked that I thought was very insightful under the section about the founders' Christian ideals. And he said, you write that they drew from their Christian conviction to design a constitutional system that would protect the rights of all Americans. I think if our folks could grab that, they would make, you know, at least, you know, three or four first downs. (laughs) Just not understanding that. They drew from Christian convictions to design a constitutional system that would protect the rights of all Americans, ergo, i.e., not just Christians. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think sometimes, well, oftentimes we're told that religious liberty came around about because in the Enlightenment, people became rational and decided that it was irrational to persecute in the name of God. Basically, that's simply not true. If you look at the history of Western civilization, you can trace religious liberty back to the early church father, Tertullian. Throughout church history, Christians have made powerful biblical and theological arguments for religious liberty, for religious liberty to all. Now, sometimes Christians in political authority do not heed these calls. And so you do see the persecution of religious minorities um, within Christianity and, of course, non-Christians throughout the Middle Ages and so forth. But when you get to the early modern era, say the 16th, 17th century, you begin to see people like William Penn, Roger Williams, John Owen, and others returning to these wonderful Christian arguments based on the Golden Rule and other biblical passages saying, look, God doesn't want us to persecute other people in the name of religion. People ought to be free to worship God according to the dictates of conscience, even if they're worshiping the wrong God. By the time you get to the late 18th century, this had become a powerfully entrenched idea, and it's really hard to find an American founder that does not embrace a very robust understanding of religious liberty. Obviously, religious liberty has to include the right to believe whatever you want to believe and to worship God however you want to worship God, but the founders understood that it goes beyond that, and so they, for instance, made what are called religious accommodations or religious exemptions that permit Quakers to hold public office. Quakers, of course, famously believe they shouldn't swear oaths, and that kept them from holding public office in England until 1832, for instance. But the U.S. Constitution itself permits presidents to swear or affirm, which Quakers have no problem doing. I've already mentioned the accommodation of pacifists. Unfortunately, in America, we have not forced pacifists to serve in the military against the religious convictions, and appropriately so. Um, They believe that Jesus means what he says when he says, turn the other cheek, don't be violent. Now, most Christians interpret those passages somewhat differently. 
Quakers, Brethren, Mennonites, uh, Moravians take it pretty literally, and thank goodness that we protect their rights to live according to their religious convictions. I have a quip. I say we're all pacifists until war comes to your shore, you know, mm-hmm. and it'd be fascinating to see you know, played out. I agree with you about their conscience, but if, you know, if they approach their farm, their city, their state, they started taking their women and children and burning their houses. I wonder how well pacifism would, you know, fare. I mean, it, it's such a conscionable <laughs> viewpoint to me. I understand we should support them, but I just have this, it just makes me scratch my The same is true, of course, in Israel. When you look at the ultra Orthodox, you know, mm-hmm. their view of Israel as a state, you know, is not valid because God didn't bring it in. The military might brought it in. So it's, I guess that's too far of a digression. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I should mention that Quakers and others don't get a get out of service free card. What we've done in America is require them to do some sort of alternative service, Correct. some non-military service. And this comes with some disability. So for instance, in World War II, if you're a GI, you got to participate in the GI Bill and have some of your college paid for. Quaker pacifists had to serve in other ways. And they did not get to participate in the GI Bill. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's entirely appropriate. There's a difference between people putting their lives on the line and doing good and useful work in a hospital, for instance, and they should be rewarded accordingly. Sure. Let's talk about two final questions. And this second to last one is a little bit complex for me to even articulate. In my lifetime, let's say three decades, almost four of being somewhat conscious of politics and voting and policy and results. Again, as I mentioned earlier, life and marriage seem to be sort of the whetstones. Now, those are old, and now it's fascinating to watch the polarization, the vitriol. I still, you know, I was talking to another friend of mine who is a very bright politician, attorney, so he can swim circles around me. He maintains that the vitriol is no different than it was even in Lincoln's time. I mean, the Civil War would be illustrative that there was a lot of vitriol. But when you see the principle argued that I can't vote for a political leader who is immoral, amoral, etc., yet who makes good decisions policy-wise, over against the other party that we know is pro-death, we know that is pro-many things that are unconscionable for the Christian heart. Help me as a pastor, you as a professor, how do we talk about these things without the flashpoint and explain, at least, and I'll lead, I'm leading the question, there's a higher moral issue here, and the moral issue isn't the person but it's the policy and the decisions and the people that they're going to surround themselves with, whatever it's a state, local, you know, governing or national office. Yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful question. And I guess I would say that politics is the art of the possible and that we have a responsibility, a duty as citizens to make the best possible choice. We can't just live in an ideal sort of world where we kind of wish something would be the case when it's not. If I can just put a point on it, I think it's sort of interesting. If you look back to 2016, conservative Christians supported almost any candidate besides Donald Trump, a Ben Carson, a Rubio, a Bush. They were very solidly behind those candidates. And yet in the final analysis, when Donald Trump won the nomination, now you're forced to make a choice. Are you going to vote for a man who is hardly a moral exemplar 
but who is pro-life, who is pro-religious liberty, who is reasonably fiscally um, conservative, are you going to vote for a woman who is most certainly pro-choice, anti-religious liberty, and fiscally irresponsible? I think it was a pretty easy choice. And I think we're going to be faced with that sort of choice again in, in 2020. In my mind, it is not a hard choice. Now, when we have a chance in 2024 to get another nominee, you know, we'll try to find someone who's maybe more of a moral exemplar, who is also pro-life, pro-religious liberty, fiscally conservative, and this sort of thing. Yeah, so our, politics is the art of the possible, and it just simply is irresponsible to say, I'm not going to vote because a presidential nominee is not a moral exemplar. I, you know, and I have friends, I'm sure you do too, that I consider intelligent, well-intentioned, you know, godly men and women who would fall in that last category. I'm not going to vote or they'll cross the line. And I go, you can't tell me that voting for, and I, I'm just call it pro death, because if you're voting for pro choice, you're voting for pro death. You're not protecting the right of the most innocent, the most vulnerable of our society. And at the same time, you know, the arguments can become permutations. Again, it's unconscionable to me. If we went back to JFK and MLK, those are the two indexes I use. If they were under the same scrutiny with social media, instant media, unverified media, as we live today, both of them would have perhaps been egregious failures, but yet their celebrated heroes, you know, in the large part of America would never question, you know, the principal actions of JFK and MLK, but we know a lot more about current day politics because of the instantaneous media. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And so here's where I think I might disagree a little bit with your friend. I do think the vitriol is probably greater today, in part because we have the ability to cocoon ourselves, right? We can get all of our media from either conservative sources and oftentimes sort of extremist conservative sources or very liberal sources and even extremist liberal sources. And so when this is all we hear, one side or the other, it's so easy to come to the conclusion that the other side is just literally insane, that the other side is evil. And so we do have this sense of, of opposition that maybe we didn't even have if you go back to the 1990s. I'm not certainly not saying the 1990s were a sort of ideal time, but you did seem to be able to say, okay, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, but we can disagree about these things. We can work together on those things. Um, if I can just give one example of that, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, 1993, it was supported by 97 senators, 97 to three in the Senate, unanimous in the House. It was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Democrats and Republicans could come together in the early 1990s and say religious liberty is important. And yet nowadays, especially when it comes to LGBTQ type issues, the progressive left will just give nothing to religious liberty. Of course, you cannot be free not to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony. It's a new phenomenon. It's a very disappointing phenomenon. All right. So I like to land these discussions, giving people some hope. You mentioned some organizations that are doing good work beyond those kind of uh, sources. Give us the two, three, four Dr. Hall bullets on how to keep hopeful in uh, some pretty perilous time. Certainly. Well, first and foremost, God is sovereign and the kingdom of God will advance. You know, we cannot have our hope in any nation, in any political party, in any set of leaders. And so the kingdom of God will advance and the gates of hell will not withstand it. So ultimately, we must be people of hope. I do think that we have this wonderful constitutional order that has served America very well. 
we're still free to engage in freedom of speech and to vote and run for office and to make political arguments in the public square and not be thrown in jail because of it. And so we should exercise these rights. We must participate in politics. And if Christians show up to the voting booth, we can get some good people in office. And so I would strongly encourage, this is just not a time where people should stick their head in the stand and stay at home. And then again, I would encourage people to support these religious advocacy groups that are on the front lines fighting every day, and they win a lot more cases than they lose. And so there is hope in our judicial system. So those are hopefully three things that can give your listeners hope. I'm sure there's more, but those are the three that jump to mind. Well, and I'll add a fourth. You need to grab yourself a copy of Did America Have a Christian Founding by Dr. Mark David Hall, subtitled Separating the Modern Myth from Historical Truth, a very readable, a very appropriate book for our July 4th celebrations in the year of our Lord 2020. And Mark, thanks for your time and for your contribution. And uh, I pray uh, God's blessings on your ministry and your teaching. Hey, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Blessings. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.